Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Sarah Burstein, Professor of Law at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. We will discuss her article, The Patented Design, which was published in the Tennessee Law Review. So welcome back to the podcast, Sarah. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah. So you're the first repeat guest on on the show, and I'm very excited about that. And and the reason patents are the best. What else are you going to repeat? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, as you know, I mean, I'm a huge fan of design patents. I'm or design patent scholarship, as it were, and I'm especially a huge fan of your work. And I'm now really also a huge fan of this paper, which. Uh, as I was saying a moment ago, just really got me so interested in the kind of the ontology of the of the design patent, as it were. Um, but before we dig too deep, for listeners who haven't explored design patents in the past, or maybe haven't listened to the previous episode with you, which I think was also really interesting and worth a listen, um, I was wondering if you could start by talking a little bit, you know, kind of more broadly about what kind of design conceptually is and how the concept of design relates to design patents. Yes, that's a great and really, really difficult question. Because um, sort of historically, if we're talking about design more generally, design was sort of all the stuff that wasn't something else, right? It didn't qualify as fine art. We'll just throw it in the design bucket. It's not invention. We'll throw it in the design bucket. And to some degree, we see that in the design patent law, too. Um, But at least historically, we've had this statutory language that talks about designs for articles of manufacture, right? The, The language we've had since the early 20th century is specifically you can get a design patent for, quote, you know, a design for an article of manufacture that's ornamental and all these other things. So what does that mean? And the courts and the PTO for a long time really sort of put that in three buckets, Um, You could get a design patent for the shape of something, like the shape of a chair, a design patent for surface ornamentation, like some roses I paint on the chair, or the combination of both, Um, which was never the most popular option for reasons that you might imagine, because it's pretty narrow. Um, But if the only thing that's new is the roses on the chair, you've got that option. Um, Now, that sort of exploded since this decision in 1980 by the Court of Customs and Patent Appeals. And then they said, you know what? Nope. The statute just says design. It's any design, whatever you want. Go at Mm. it. Anything goes. (laughs) Um, And so I don't think it's surprising that these things sort of came to a head in the period post-1980, where all of a sudden we've got these doctrines and sort of um, ideas that have been developed, maybe not super well developed, but we kind of had them and then they got exploded. And now mm. we're trying to figure out what, what do we do now? <laughs> so I, I was wondering, maybe you could talk a little bit about how designers think about what they do as a way of sort of, because I, I, I felt like that conversation was part of the framing that you were doing in thinking about, you know, kind of how we ought to conceptualize uh, design patents. And, and there was a line that really that really jumped jumped out at me where you quoted a a kind of famous designer as saying designing without a market would be unethical or ineffective and i just that's such a great line and i was wondering <laughs> if you could talk about like why what that means yeah i mean uh design isn't art right i mean um that's not 
you're not, designers don't see their job as I'm going to make a pretty chair to inform the world about some higher truth about chairs or something. Um, sorry, as you know, I was an art major and I'm a little bit cynical about sort of art <laughs> theory. Um, uh, but, you know, we, we just don't have that, right? I mean, sometimes you'll see things put in a museum that we would normally think of as art objects, but they're kind of, pre- or design objects, but they're presented in an art way. But really, when you go to design school, you're learning how to be an industrial designer. It, it is. It's all about the market. There's a product. There's a client. They want a new design for a chair, right? They don't want Sarah's fluffy dream time, you know, sort of <laughs> ideas of what a chair might be. Um, they want something that's going to work well. That their, you know, their customers are going to like. That's going to look good. You know, fulfill all their sort of requirements. Mm. So I think that that's sort of an interesting way. Um, to think about design is that there is this sort of commercial market intersection that we don't see, or at least we don't see explicitly recognized in the fine arts. Mm. So some people might not have ever, God forbid, even seen a design patent or kind Mm -hmm. of have a sense of how they work. Could, Could you just briefly describe like what a design patent looks like and what the kind of key elements of a design patent are? Sure. So when you go to the patent office to get a patent, you have to, there's two main parts that are the most important. Um, There's your, this very short pro forma verbal claim where you say, I design, I claim an ornamental design for a chair as shown. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a chair. I'm talking about chairs tonight because they're a great example. But um, any any article manufacturer, you put it there, and then you have to use that same article in the title. And then the as shown part means you have to submit drawings or photographs. So you would have images sh- sufficient to show an ordinary designer how to create your design. So if I'm claiming the design for the shape of a chair, normally I'm going to need six views, right? All the sides plus an angle view. Mm. And the visual disclosure is really the key part of it. Uh, but like I said, it's not the only part. You're, mm-hmm. The statute says it's a design for an article of manufacture, and the PTO makes you name an article of manufacture. Yeah, and I feel like that that second part, it seems like, has often really gotten uh, forgotten or left out of the picture, as it were. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I was I was just reading an article by some other scholars who, who sort of uh, – see that requirement at all is almost like a box you have to check, right? They say you have to account for some article. Um, But I guess I read the statute really differently and think a design for an article of manufacture is actually the key heart of this, right? It's the statutory Mm -hmm. subject matter. It has to have some meaning. Um, And I'm not really, you know, I think a lot of lawyers uh, might prefer if it was just kind of a box you have to check, but that, that just never made a whole lot of sense to me. Right. And I, and I think that segues really nicely into this sort of almost like a dilemma that you illuminate about the subject matter of design patents. In other words, in other words, kind of thinking about what they actually cover, like what's the nature of the knowledge good, as it yeah. were, that a design patent protects. So I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of what that problem is or what, like what the possibilities are mm-hmm. and why the difference between them matters. Yeah. So it's a difficult problem and I'm not sure I know the right answer yet because to some degree you can think about it as statutory subject matter and the other part is scope, 
right? In design patent, we've said they're the same. Um, whatever's in the patent is what you get, as opposed to say copyright, right? Where I could write a song and I have a copyright in the whole song, but it could be infringed if someone copies just part of that song, right? Mm. You don't have to actually copy the whole song. So we don't, we don't fight so much. We've got a, a separate issue of scope versus thing, right? Mm. Um, it, and so that is part of what makes this interesting because I'm not sure you can talk about one without the other unless you want to try to split them up. But the reason I wrote this paper, I was um, at a really, really great design law roundtable hosted by Mark Janis and Graham Dinwiddie and Annette Kaur. And one of the sessions was on this topic because in Europe, there's been this sort of motion toward untethering designs. Um, there was actually a case on this more recently after that conference um, about if you like take a picture of a product that's the subject of a design registration, is that a violation of the registration? Mm. And it looks like European courts are going that way. And so I came home really interested in the question of, okay, um, is this actually something we already know under U.S. design patent law? What's the answer? What should the answer be? So mm. that's how I got interested in it, mostly because I was concerned about what Europe was doing. Yeah. And I was interested, like uh, the substantial bulk of the paper is like almost sort of a forensic analysis of yeah. <laughs> of sort of the history of the doctrinal conception of, you know, what is a design patent. So could you talk a little bit about sort of what historical sources you looked at for clues to the meaning of the kind of doctrinal meaning of the term and sort of why you chose those sources and why you thought they were illuminating. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear you put it that way because I mean, the answer is the evidence is really slim, right? There's not a lot. So I looked at the cases, right? Supreme Court, Court of Custom and Patent Appeals, the Federal Circuit, um, district courts, uh, and then the decisions of the patent office, both as expressed in the Commissioner of Patents decisions and the Manual of Patent Examining Procedure. So neither, I mean, nothing the PTO says is binding, right? But it's it's usually pretty persuasive to courts. And one would think that since the PTO's on the front lines, they have a lot of incentive to think through these things, even when they haven't made it to courts yet. Mm. Um, and the answer I found was there's there's just not a lot either way um, for most of history. But there is kind of an interesting suggestion that we might want to treat different types of designs differently, right? So I said there's the two main buckets. And you can make three types of claims, right? Surface ornamentation, configuration, or a combination. And there is at least some suggestion in the older cases and decisions that maybe we want to think about surface design differently. Um, maybe if I paint some flowers it's actually the same design, whether I put it on a bread dish or a dinner plate or a platter, right? I mean, that, that makes some sense, mm. um, even though those are all technically distinct articles. Um, the shape one's harder, right? Because at least if design patents are construed narrowly, it's hard to imagine many shapes that would work for different things. Um, one of my favorite examples is someone made a chandelier out of tiny models of famous chairs. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I told you chairs are my favorite. Um, you know, but there you've got an, a rare kind of example where the shape could be the same that's being used as sort of a decorative ornament instead of the actual shape of a thing. 
So there just wasn't a lot. And the thing, the cases that were the most on point to my questions were these three district court cases, um, one of which was pending at the time I started this project, um, the the video game, the PS products one. And Mm. um, then these other weird cases about uh, this wingnut hat and (laughs) this Disney uh, merchandise kind of thing. Um, So you had a novelty duck call, um, you know, and keychains and like was that a problem um which is kind of a fun case too because it also shows you the point that the pto does not examine for copyright or trademark infringement mm-hmm. right so, so if how- i want to go make a mighty ducks thing i can do it <laughs> yeah yeah so so how did those cases play out and how did you find them illuminating so in all of those cases the courts ended up saying and of course they ended up relying back on each other that um they were going to look at this sort of classic statement of what's design patent infringement from the Supreme Court in the 19th century. Um, and it's this case called Gorham v. White. It was the first design patent case ever decided by the Supreme Court um, back in the day where there were direct appeals. So the Supreme Court wasn't picking their cases. They just had to hear all the patent cases. And they said, we don't think this matches up with Gorham. And so one problem with that was um, the way they viewed Gorham. So I like these results, right? I already told you my normative prior was I didn't mm. think I liked pictures to be infringement. Um, mm-hmm. But I think these courts were actually reading Gorham wrong. And mm. the Gorham test isn't precisely the test we use today anyway. It's sort of inspired by Gorham. So my concern was um, they, they sort of read Gorham as if it was a consumer confusion test. Right, as if no one's going to buy a duck call thinking it's a keychain, or no one's going to buy a video game thinking it's brass knuckles um, in the video game case. Mm-hmm. But that's not really what Gorham says. That's not really the test. Um, and so, uh, when I was working on this draft, um, someone called me alarmist <laughs> for pursuing this because they said, "Look, the courts are doing fine. Why do we have to talk about it?" I was like, "Yeah, but they're doing it wrong." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they weren't really getting it. Kind of the difficult question, like a lot of the arguments, you know, that people would make weren't really getting at those sort of core. What are we trying to protect here? Issues that you raised earlier. So that's one reason. You know, uh, I thought it was interesting that these three cases, small sample size, um, all went one way, but they all went that way for kind of strange and problematic reasons. Yeah. You know, and I have to say, I mean, I found your discussion of Gorham really interesting too, because it was a case I knew about, mm-hmm. but hadn't, hadn't really spent any time looking at it. And I felt like I understood what was at stake much better after reading your description of what was going on there. So I will, maybe you could just spend a moment just like kind of explaining why Gorham is illuminating, because I think it might help people understand why sort of the courts are veering off in a weird direction. Yeah. So um, like I said, this was the first one. It was an old statute. Um so, you know, we might want to distinguish it, but basically the issue in Gorham was uh, not totally dissimilar from what we're talking about now. <laughs> the question was, do design, design patents cover products or processes? Um, the district court had sort of suggested that 
you know, if you make things using the same method, that's going to be a problem under the design patent. And so the main core part of Gorham said, no, this is about how things look, not about how they're made. And there's a lot of sort of free-ranging discussion that may or may not be dicta, but they said, look, the test is visual similarity. And they say that over and over and over and over again. But the problem is the kind of money quote from Gorham, the one that everyone knows if they know anything about Gorham and then when they quote, um, says they're infringed if the resemblance is such to deceive an observer, inducing him to purchase one product, right? Supposing it to be the other. Mm. And so that sounds like what we think of today as trademark confusion, right? Point, mm-hmm. Classic point of sale, passing off sort of stuff. But if you read the whole decision in context, it's really clear that what the court's doing there is describing a very high level of visual similarity, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that you would actually be confused at the point of sale, but it's that these two things look so similar that someone might be that confused, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Well, it also struck me that like part of it was sort of like really thinking about like the need to generalize slightly across product categories mm. without there being meaningful variations in the design itself. Yeah. I mean, again, it goes back to like, what kind of designs are we talking about? How do we conceptualize what they even are? And none of these cases or materials I was able to find historically really, um, I thought were satisfying, at least on the surface ornamentation part. I think that's mm-hmm. arguably the harder part. Um you know, on the shape, it seemed a little bit easier. So another thing that's problematic here in looking at the history is that so much has changed since Gorham, right? The way we claim designs has changed. The test has changed. So that Gorham test, that visual similarity test, what the Supreme Court was in, they said, right, we're going to buy one supposing it to be the other. They're looking at the actual products. Mm-hmm. So we, we'd say the patentee's commercial embodiment today compared to the accused product. Now today we've got this sort of um, sophisticated, manipulable system where people craft their drawings to make them as broad as possible and sort of capture things. That It's just a totally different game than we have today. So it's hard to take those old cases and compare them to today, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and then the other, the other example that you used that I thought, historical example, that I found really illuminating was, was the Peter Rabbit yeah. one. <laughs> because of kind of the colloquy between the examiner and the applicant and sort of them like almost talking past each other as to what they thought was possible. Um, so <laughs> maybe, maybe you could say a little something about that because I'd never heard of that example before and it was just fantastic. Yeah, it's so fun, right? So, um, this guy wrote these books, this Peter Rabbit books that were totally um, straight up, you know, just trying to rip off Beatrix Potter, right? Like here's kind of like the American bunny stories, right? Um, And wrote these comic strips with this character and wanted to protect the design and said, oh yeah, so here's my, it's a drawing of a rabbit and said, well, you know, this could be toys, it could be decorations, all these kind of things. Um, And like you said, got some pushback from the PTO and said, you know, uh, what exactly are we doing here? And this, like I said, we're we're talking about the surface ornamentation realm, not the shapes. Um, But, you know, uh, the applicant kept saying, look, no matter if I put this on a handkerchief, a bed 
quilt. It's all the same thing. I should get it. And uh, like you said, in the second one, Clay sort of uh, seemed to view this as a rule that there's, you have to reduce the invention to practice. Um, and I don't know how many patent people are listening right now, but the, the big question in patent law is when have you actually invented something, right? Or one mm. big question. And we often talk about reducing the invention to practice. So if I come up with a fantastic new mousetrap, if I actually build a working model, that's definitely reduction to practice. Um, but there's some other ways, right? If I draw really detailed schematics um, and so that other people could make my mousetrap, that's good enough too. So there's this kind of question if, um, is this what's going on here, right? Is this all we have to do is we have to show it's applied to one thing and then it can go count for anything. And one thing that was really interesting in these old cases is the PTO seemed to kind of punt, right? Um, mm -hmm. They would say, well, that's an issue for the courts, uh, whether they think the bed quilt and the handkerchief are similar enough. And there just aren't a lot of, I wasn't able to find cases really grappling with that issue. And so it's really interesting today because um, we finally have this in front of the federal circuit. And of course, I'm really hoping they're not going to mess it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as a way of teeing that up, I mean, one of the things I thought was so fascinating about the Peter Rabbit case was that in a sense, the the applicant, the the designer was, he wanted what it seems like, uh, you know, one subset of design patent scholars think design patents should do, and certainly what a lot of design patent owners mm -hmm. think design patents should do. And you're arguing in the paper that there's a better alternative way of thinking about sort of what how design patent uh, subject matter should work. So I was maybe you could spend a sec, like sort of laying out what those two alternative approaches are and explaining why you think your approach is the superior one. Yeah. So I think that if design patent is going to be anything different than copyright, if it's got some unique role for it to play in the IP universe, so to speak, um, we really need to tether it to products, specific products or articles, depending on what system or nomenclature you want to use. I just don't see, um, you know, frankly, if, if we're going to say like with Peter Rabbit, right, that I draw my character, I get him no matter what or no matter where, that's just a copyright. Um, and it's not really a design for an article of manufacture, which is part of the problem. Mm. Um, so I think that we need to say, look, uh, that the design patent should be conceptualized as protecting the same type of product, right? The design is applied to the same type of product. So my chair design will be infringed by other chairs. Um, if you want to call them stools, I don't care if they look the same, right? Um, but they're not going to be infringed by that lamp I was telling you about, where you have the miniature models just as decorations. Mm. And surface ornamentations might be a little bit different um, just because it does seem like as a matter of history and culture and kind of common sense, we sometimes do think of surface designs. It's the same design for etching glass, whether it's a water glass or a wine glass, right? So there might be some more play in those joints. So that's the basics of what I'm proposing. Um, the, the other important implication is that just taking a picture of something shouldn't be deemed an infringement of the patent. 
So if I take a picture of your chair or your shoe, um, that should be totally fine. The only thing we should be really concerned about is actually making shoes and chairs. Mm, mm. So, so you, you, you've been talk, alluding to the fact that this issue seems to be sort of teed up right now before the federal circuit. So maybe you could talk uh, about the case in which that happens, sort of what it's about and why you think this problem is sort of well represented in the case in question. Yeah. So it's really interesting. This case that I've been following is called Curver Luxembourg versus Home Expressions. It's a case out in New Jersey, currently pending in front of the federal circuit. And the interesting thing here is I just told you about how there's all these cases about shapes and not as much about surface ornamentation. And this is a surface ornamentation case. Mm. So it really kind of squarely puts up that Peter Rabbit issue, right? Is is Peter Rabbit going to be the same? Is the scope going to apply to anything or is it going to be limited? So the design there is this sort of interlocking Y design that looks a lot like things that are very old and not novel. <laughs> um, other than it's got like a very slight variation that there's yeah, every other I mean, line is bisected. You have you seen this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it looked a lot like wicker to me. Yeah. Well, if you pull up, so a clinic at Berkeley did an amicus brief, and they found all these examples of other than the bisecting line on every other vertical. Um, this is a very old design, right? That that's the only part that's new is this sort of minor. Um, variation. So that's kind of an interesting issue for one. But the case is really weird. And it just, like I said, tees up all these things we've been talking about. Because um, when they originally applied for the design patent, they the title was uh, furniture, right? Furniture part <laughs> or a part of. And the examiner said, no, you know, our rules say that you have to, quote, designate the particular article, which is the subject of the design. you got to tell us the article. You can't just say furniture. That's too broad. So they say, okay, it's a chair. And um, they get their patent for this Y design, and both the title and the verbal portion of the claim say chair, right? Um, but Curver apparently didn't end up making chairs, or at least they don't do it now. They sell these little storage baskets, those plastic ones like you buy at Target, um, which is where I think I bought my infringing one um, or allegedly infringing one. Um, <laughs> and so Curver's making these storage baskets with this surface design on it. And then Home Expression starts making storage baskets that, according to the complaint, are basically identical, right? You're just totally ripping me off. Um, and so Home Expressions files this motion to dismiss and says, look, your patents for chairs, we're not making chairs, let's all go home. Um, and uh, uh, so, the, you know, I mean, like you said, this is Peter Rabbit in court, right? Um, all these same issues. Does this matter? Does it not? Um, the hard part is, is the federal circuit, or the, not the federal circuit, sorry, the district court um before it kind of gets to all these core issues says, first we have to do prosecution history estoppel, which is a doctrine originally developed in utility patent law that was only recently ruled to apply to design patents. 
I think most people always assumed it did, but it was only in the last couple of years that the federal circuit said it did. And -hmm. so the idea is basically this. Um, If you tell your, the PTO that my invention covers range one to a hundred of whatever. um, And the examiner goes, no, that's not new. People have already been doing 80 and you go, okay, okay. So mine is um, one to 79, right? (laughs) So you've narrowed your claim for a very, stylized abstract examples that utility patent people yell at me, but you get the point, right? If you Mm. give something up Mm -hmm. in prosecution, what they don't want is for you to be able to go back in litigation and say, oh, no, no, you're doing 90, you infringe. Mm Because you gave up 90. Um, And this doctrine is weird for design patents for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that the doctrine that would allow you to even plausibly claim 90 which is uh, this doctrine of equivalence doesn't apply mm. to design patents, right? So it's very strange. It's this, it's you yeah. know, so sort of this solution yeah. for a problem well, we don't have. Yeah, I mean, almost because like design patents, like the doctrine of equivalence is like built into the analysis. Exactly, like. right? We don't have a separate test, but our, our Egyptian goddess test, which is the leading case today, says, look, they have to look a lot alike, but they don't have to be perfectly identical. So that's, you know, that's different than what we see in utility patents. But so here's the, I mean, I think, so it's a weird fit, but the bottom line sort of fairness estoppel principles are certainly the same, right? Mm. It doesn't make sense that um, if you were to tell the PTO, no, X is not my design, you shouldn't be able to go sue someone who's doing X, mm-hmm. right? So So it makes sense, but we're still kind of working out the, um, the kinks, which is actually kind of funny because in the briefs, Curver's criticizing home expressions for not having any cases on point. And I was like, you know, <laughs> you know, this only got decided a few years ago. It's, <laughs> it, it's really not surprising that there's no case on all fours yet. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so, yeah, so the court goes in this whole prosecution history estoppel based on the article manufacturer thing I told you about before, right, where they went from furniture to chair. And they said, look, you know, that's got to mean something. If you amended your claim to say this is a design for furniture, but now it's a design for chairs, you gave something up. Um, and mm. presumpt- presumptively, that something includes everything that's not chairs, right? <laughs> uh, which, you know, again, the, the court was pretty um, refreshingly honest about it. You know, they said this is kind of the spirit of the test, even if it doesn't fit perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're fighting a lot about this. So that's kind of a weird aside, right? But it, it also kind of shows these basic fairness issues that I talked about a little bit in the paper, um, that if someone was reading this file wrapper, if they're trying to figure out if I make storage boxes with this, this pattern, is it going to infringe this patent? Um, it'd be weird to say, we're not going to let you have all furniture or we're not going to let you say you have all furniture but the end effect is you still get all things. <laughs> I mean, it just seems strange, yeah. right? And, you know, yeah. I, I think that the response from people who um, take a different view of the statutory subject matter would say, oh, this is just administrative. You know, it's just um, Scrivener stuff that the PTO makes you do. And it's just, you know, that reduction of practice thing, whatever, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But it doesn't make sense to me, right? If it, if, if it doesn't matter, uh, people have been just, trying to claim designs with literally the title, quote, article of manufacture for a hundred years. 
and the PTO hasn't let them, you know? <laughs> so um, they must think something matters. And if you look at the MPEP, it says, you know, so we can check the right search fields and all these things. But, but again, if the scope is everything, then you just have to search everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it just seems strange to me. That, I mean, there must be some method to this madness. Um, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you're planning to attend the oral arguments at the federal circuit. I wonder, like, in closing, if you have any predictions about sort of how the federal circuit will look at this dispute about sort of the categorization of design claims and um, sort of what the kind of future prospects of this particular dispute might be. Yeah. So I hope I'm going to get to go to the arguments. Um, And in any case, I'm always nervous to make predictions about the federal circuit, (laughs) Um, you know, because it's hard. I, I think we talked about this last time, but some of the judges seem to really care about design patents and get that this is a different type of patent. It should have its own rules. It makes sense to kind of rethink things. And some of the judges seem to just think design patents are unimportant cases where they can just, uh, you know, kind of play out whatever their own hobby horses are in utility patent law. Right. I'm really angry about this doctrine, so I'm going to go do it here in design. Um, so I worry about that here, right? Um, I worry because utility patents are totally different, right? We we say we don't care about the title. Um, we say we don't maybe sometimes care about some of the words in the claim. Um, there's kind of this interesting, I know uh, Mark Lindley's working on a, a project right now about patent preambles. And I think some people would say, well, this is just like a preamble and it shouldn't matter. Um so I, I'm really curious to hear how the party's arguments seem to affect the judges and whether or not, one, they really care and see how important these issues are, and two, um, whether they kind of get the larger policy issues. I think mm-hmm. that's one thing that the the Berkeley Clinic Brief does nicely and talks about, at least with respect to their clients who do open source hardware stuff and are concerned about 3d printing um, Mm -hmm. sort of highlighting some of the real world things but i worry about you know i just told you this about the weird prosecution history estoppel stuff and getting down in the weeds and there's also this sort of line i'm hearing from the design patent bar when people talk about this case and they go oh it's about titles um Mm -hmm. and, and it's not really about titles i mean it is right but remember the title is also what's in the claim and so the question is, do we care what the claim says? Mm. And I'm just uh, uh, hesitant to make any predictions about what the federal circuit's going to do with this. Um, although, obviously, I hope they read inside my paper. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if they have any sense, if they have any sense, they absolutely will. Um, well, Sarah, it's been a pleasure, as always, talking to you. And um, really, it's such a cool paper. And I hope you make it to the oral argument. Thanks.
カニのエキスですっきり味噌味日清カップヌードル味噌新登場うん23パ